welcome to Love Nature, the Biophilia Podcast, a product of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Now here are your hosts, Dr. Eric Dorfman and Dr. Dan Dombrowski. Welcome to the first, the inaugural episode of Love Nature, the Biophilia Podcast. I am Dr. Eric Dorfman, the Director and CEO of North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. And I am Dr. Dan Dombrowski, the Chief Veterinarian at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. And I'm excited to be here. I think this is going to be a great opportunity and a fun conversation about love for nature and biophilia. And for the many conversations we've had already, this is a, a topic that really resonates a lot with both of us. And for me, I think being a museum that sort of connects hearts and minds, especially with a conservation focus, doesn't it, or science and conservation, really, this is kind of our space, isn't it? Absolutely. I agree. Totally. I, uh, I've had a wonderful opportunity uh, working at a museum, being a veterinarian, working with species that are a lot of times wildlife species or wildlife cases or exotic species. And so I get to work with some really interesting cases, a lot of interesting animals, but I also get to educate and work with our museum public. Right. Yes, you do. And for those of you who haven't been to the museum, Ben's veterinary clinic is actually covered in glass. Well, covered. It's got a, it's got a window, big window, and the public can come in and see Ben and his team working, doing procedures on, on the animals. But let's step back a second and think about what biophilia is to begin with. In 1984, Dr. E.O. Wilson wrote the book Biophilia, and in it he defined that term as our innate connection to nature, humans' innate connection to nature. What do you think, Dan? It does, and I think he, he, really, he really hit on a few points that we're a part of nature, right? We're a part of the wildlife and a part of the, the wilderness, we have a long history with nature, and I think it's good for us to recognize that connection and celebrate that connection. I find that a lot of times it's easy to get a little disconnected and think of nature as a, an aquarium or a glass bowl that somehow is separate from us. But my, I try to work hard to introduce people to concepts and ideas and all the cool stuff that's happening out there around us. And I think we're really a part of that and a part of that process. It's good for us. It's good for our health, good for our societies and communities and, and really our, our existence here on, on the planet, right? Absolutely. And of course, that really brings up the idea of what is nature? Are we nature? Is nature out your window or is nature something you have to drive to? For instance, if we're biological organisms, then our houses should in some ways be part of nature. You know, So there's so much to so much to think about and to explore. And of course, biophilia since 1984 has been the subject of things like art and architecture and, you know, there's biophilic design. So over the course of this podcast, we'll be inviting all kinds of people in who have different perspectives on biophilia and having some really exciting conversations. Yeah, I think we'll introduce a lot of folks that have their own angles or perspectives on nature and they may be scientists or authors or folks that are just sort of out there in the world doing things that, that connect to nature maybe architects that bring nature into buildings and and i think it'll be a great opportunity for for us to meet them and, and get to know them and introduce them to our listeners and of course later on in the show we'll be having dr eo wilson as our inaugural guest the author of biophilia and of course so many other books 
So that's going to be a fantastic interview, really. Absolutely. And that brings together our science and nature kind of in one and the study of biodiversity. I think that's a really important aspect of hopefully what we'll go into in, in the podcast in the future. And we, of course, have been discussing different things that would fit into biophilia, even things like houseplants and pets and backyard conservation and nature art, which I can see actually here. I'm, of course, we're doing this remotely, being good social distancers. And I can see in the, the back of Dan's <laughs> wall, there's some nature art there behind him. And what are those? I've actually been meaning over these connections. Are those Boy Scout badges or something? Oh, that's so funny. I I, uh, I don't know how much view you get here, but those are actually wildlife patches, actually from Pennsylvania. I was going uh, to say they've got a yeah, keystone shape to they them. They do, so they do. These are uh, mostly non-game species, a series of patches that they came out with in the state of Pennsylvania and have lots of cool reptiles and amphibians and fish. So. Oh, how cool. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, this is the thing, too, isn't it, that our connection to nature not only takes so many forms, but has so much nuance you know there's the being out in nature and digging things up and counting things and whether it's digging through the dirt or the sand or diving and watching stuff there's all of that kind of thing but there's also the way we choose to bring it into our homes through our pets through the art that we choose to put on our walls i always think about when we talk about biophilic design i I think about here in north carolina at the coast you know our coastal development and a lot of that especially from maybe 40, 50 years ago, a lot of those homes and buildings were were really built so that they interacted with the coastal environment, with the the wind and the air and views onto the water. They're usually materials that are, you know, very sort of natural materials that that kind of blend in well. And so that's what I always think about when kind of the beginnings of that, you know, you're in in those homes and you just really feel like you're a part of the outdoors. You can feel the air and smell all the smells and sights and sounds kind of, they're really right there with you even while you're indoors. So. Yeah, no, I I love that. My first home, I was born in a a home right on the beach in Southern California. And my first memory of being there was was seeing grunion, which are these little fish that breed in the surf right on the sand. And they dig little holes in the sand and really only an inch or two of water as the waves come up. And back when I was a kid and they were perhaps more abundant, people would go down and collect them for fry-ups. But for me, being a little kid and watching all this phenomenon happen right in front of you is pretty special. And in some ways, I think the magic of what that was, you know, the night with the silvery fish and the flashlights and the moon, because they do this on a full moon, was really sort of an image that I've been captivated by my whole life. It's really something that stayed with me and, and something that's so exciting to think of those powerful emotive images that everybody probably has well everybody who's lucky enough to be somehow connected to the the outdoors really i think takes home and and maybe even one of the things that we try to achieve through the museum what about you dan what was a an early memory for you yeah i would have to say some of my fondest memories are with sea turtles i would say and that's something that i'm really lucky to continue to be able to work with sea turtles. But I can remember I grew up in Virginia. There's a the Virginia Institute of Marine Sciences is a place where they, they did a lot of early sea turtle work, research and science. And they worked with hatchlings. And, and when I was in high school, actually in a, a, a governor's school, where we had the science program where we could go out and do internships. I got to work at VIMS or the Virginia Institute of Marine Science 
with a group of loggerhead sea turtles. And so that was like my introduction, seeing those animals and then translating that to the adults out in the ocean and sort of that back then, even now, there's so much we don't know about sea turtles and about so much of nature that it's just so it's, it's like a, a discovery. You know, every time you're out, you make an observation. It could be at the beach. It could be in your backyard. And there's just so much to learn that, you know, we, we need armies of people, armies of individuals to be interested to really start to make those discoveries. And I think for things like our biodiversity and things that are important to, to maintain this level of nature that we have, the more people we have that we can sort of turn on to that and, and introduce, the better. And you've still got some work with sea turtles happening, don't you? Absolutely. I've been super fortunate, super uh, lucky, I guess, in my position as a, a veterinarian at the museum. I work with our other state agencies in, in the state of North Carolina, our aquariums in our North Carolina zoo. Our aquariums are very active in sea turtle rehabilitation. And so we at the museum that we work at have been able to participate and take in some cases that were cold stranded or cold stunned sea turtles and even work with those animals to nurse them back to health and release them back into the wild. So they uh, were green sea turtles, a size that was pretty easy to work with, kind of dinner plate size to, to put it in perspective. <laughs> I'm not sure you, you know. <laughs> Well, but yeah, it was it was a great experience. And, and again, that that really, those are one of those memories I have from being, you know, being a kid and, and really understanding in my first introduction to nature and when I knew that I wanted to, at that time, be a biologist, be involved in science, and eventually become a veterinarian. And so as a veterinarian at a museum, I say I have the best job in the world. I can combine all those things and do things like this podcast and introduce other people and get them excited about the things that, that I'm interested in. What actually made you want to be like decide on being a vet? I wasn't that great of a student. I didn't have good grades in sort of primary and high school. And I, I did go to college. I was one of the first folks in my family to go to college. I went and studied biology and really became interested in bugs and herps. Uh, so entomology and herpetology. And from there actually became a museum curator right out of college. I worked actually at the museum before I was a veterinarian. And we uh, have a partnership or relationship with the NC State College of Vet Medicine. I met some faculty there and was encouraged to apply. And I didn't know if I'd be able to uh, be accepted or get into the program, but but I was, and it, it turned out to be a just the best adventure of my my life. So, oh wow, that's great. <laughs> There's certainly lots of adventures. I've I've seen uh, this wonderful photograph of you uh, doing a procedure on a tarantula. There's all kinds of stuff. Like it, it really seems never ending parade of interesting things come in front of you. We at the museum get to work in our veterinary services group on a lot of exotic species and the unusual animals. And so that might be a spider, uh, it might be a tarantula that we're doing an exam on or a procedure on. It could be some other invertebrate. We work with horseshoe crabs and lobsters. Uh, we've worked with American lobsters as well. Or it could be a more traditional reptile, amphibian. Those are traditional for us. Snake surgery, any of those are, are sort of a regular part of our day. So. Yeah, that's fantastic. You know, for me, being a, a field biologist, which I was for a number of years like doing my PhD in, in outback Australia and doing postdoc in South Africa as well as northern Australia, the exposure to the landscape and the creatures in that landscape, but also then, in your case, Dan, being able to bring them in and see see them in, up close in many cases, that, at least on a personal level, has really instilled a love of nature that you know, the familiarity, the exposure to it, and 
also the desire to protect it. And I think that's the other thing that our museum can do and your windows on animal health, as your area is called, can really create that sense of familiarity and, and love, I hope. Absolutely. I, uh, I I wanted to ask you, so you've really, you know, traveled the world. I've mm. spent mo- most of my life on the East Coast of the U.S. and in a few states on the East Coast. But what do you think? Like, what have your travels? You know, you've been all over the world at facilities like our museum and some some others not like the museum. Tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> well, so I did a master's degree on the West Coast in, in Central California on Harbor Porpoise. So sort of behavioral ecology is my field of study. So I'm interested in how the environment impacts the behavior of animals in their quest to find food, find mates, stay away from predators, and how their innate drivers make them group together or not group together, as the case may be. And so as my career in science developed, it was really about relating variability in the environment to predictability and how animals cope with a lack of predictability in their food resources, for instance. So I did this behavioral project in Northern California, Monterey, and then moved to Australia for my PhD and I worked from the University of Sydney and split my time up between the east coast of Australia, studying birds, cormorants mostly, and on the east coast where the variability is very low, to the inland interior of Australia where you go through these boom and bust drought and flood cycles and the cormorants actually fly back and forth between the coast and this very long trip inland to the desert when there's been rain. And from there, I moved to South Africa, where I was looking at the wetlands of the the east coast of South Africa on what predictors of wetland systems made the different assemblages of water birds that you would see. Yeah. And so, you know, that thinking about regimes and, and topography and how farmland was impacting. And so even then was starting to think a lot about how farming impacted the environment that the water birds had to navigate, but also how the presence of wetlands could be important for things like ecotourism and water rehabilitation. So, I mean, there, there even then was recognizing that there could be an interplay between humanity and environment. And Actually, in Australia, so I went back to Australia for my second postdoc, and that was up in the, the top end in Kakadu National Park. But during that, I spent time on the Great Barrier Reef, so which was pretty yeah. special. And in yeah. fact, seeing, you know, you said that green sea turtles were fairly rare here on the East Coast. And there, of course, they're the common turtles. So I've never actually seen a loggerhead. Oh, yeah, any yeah. Really huge, full-grown green turtles. Here in North Carolina, we really have a population of loggerheads that are our primary sort of nesting turtles. And so that's the one that folks here in, in North Carolina are familiar with. Uh, green turtles are common in our waters, but we're really at the like northern edge of their nesting. And so because they're really a tropical nester. And so they're they're worldwide. They're turtles that can be found around the globe, but mostly around the band of the tropics for nesting. Those animals we get are either juveniles that are growing up or uh, animals that are migrating further north, and in, in this case, to, to feed and find sites to feed. So, 
Yeah, we'll have to take you out and introduce you to someone. Oh, I can't wait. That'll be fantastic. (laughs) So the thing about the Great Barrier Reef, though, is that that I was studying these egrets that that were obligatory on feeding on, they call them bommies, coral bommies that stick up out of the water at low tide. So they're like little islands of coral. And that species, over the five years or so that I studied them, the population just plummeted where I was. And in fact, I studied them right around the Pacific and was realizing that they were going to. And I thought, well, I don't really know why, right? But you have to imagine that it could be related to climate change. It could be related to some other conservation issue. And I realized that instead of being a, an academic biologist, as I had been planning to, I really wanted to get more into conservation. And that became a primary driver for me. And this gets back to the idea of biophilia, too. Here you are out there in this incredibly beautiful habitat, getting intimately involved with the biology, with the life cycle of one species or a set of species. And when you see something like that, all of a sudden plummet in terms of their numbers, it's a real wake-up call. And, And that was a career changer for me to move from this sort of academic life that I thought I would be leading to something that was more not only more conservation focused, but perhaps more public facing too. And it's been incredibly satisfying too. You know, even something like this podcast, where we are wrapping up this big set of experiences that we have and that our guests have into something where people can connect to how they feel about nature, why they they love it, or why perhaps it invokes other kind of emotions, even fear. That's where I think is our go-to place for this podcast. I agree. I think that our our love of nature, uh, if you would, um, and our, our experiences with nature and wildlife, and I think if we can bring that to people and we can find other guests, I, I want guests, and I know that that we're going to have them that I'm going to learn from. There's there's nothing I enjoy more talking in a subject that I'm familiar with and hearing something new for the first time or, or seeing something in a new way for the first time. So I want to share that type of experience with listeners so that we can bring those topics to them, those ideas. And I know if we can just give them a little taste of that, it improves lives. Once you recognize those details, you can go outside and you can see things around you and you start to make observations. And I think it's something, no matter where we come from, where our backgrounds are, we can all kind of come together on this idea of really enjoying and loving nature and and letting it be a part of the human experience uh, and and recognizing that we are a part of nature as well. I think to me that exactly resonates why we want to do this podcast that well part of it is like you said it's selfish because we get to connect to all these major people and amazing people and and learn things ourselves i think also that bringing people to science and science to people that's a really important effort a lot of what we know tells us a lot that we don't know right so so the, the vast majority of life on earth just species on earth have yet to be identified or named or, or cataloged so part of this is just really to, to help bridge that gap try to coordinate that conversation between you know the scientists that are out on the edges of discoveries and bring mm. that back to folks so they can be plugged into it one of our goals in in science and in research the goal is to publish what you find and and what that means some some folks might not even know what that means, to publish those results. You write up your report, you do your research, you get the data, you analyze it, and you write a report. You submit that to a group of peers that that do similar work or, or in similar fields of science. They review it, they make sure that it's sound and your process is sound, 
and then that's published. And that's a long process that leads to a publication that often is read by a lot of other scientists. So I'm hoping what we can do on our podcast is bridge that gap and make it a lot faster connection between folks that aren't reading those journals and the actual cutting edge science that's happening and being published. Well, this is actually something that I think is so amazing about our museum too. For those of you who haven't been there yet, one major section of the museum is a series of open laboratories. So what I mean by that is that they are big glass windows and you can come and see people working on their science, doing what they do every day right in front of you. So they're making discoveries in real time. They're doing the amazing things that, in fact, is the subject matter from for a lot of what we're talking about here. So that's an incredibly exciting thing. And what Dan's just been talking about is actually available physically in the walls of our museum. And and maybe that's what this podcast is for, is to be the virtual museum, right? To bring all those amazing ideas out to people across the world. And that is incredibly exciting to me. We have Dr. Edward O. Wilson with us coming up. We're Dan and I are both very excited about this. He's an icon of biology. I'm very excited. I think this is uh, to, to get to interview or, or have a conversation with Dr. E.O. Wilson, as, as I've always called him from his publications and books. I'm really excited to get to talk to him about some of his ideas, not only about biophilia. He really sort of set the stage or, or really branded this term uh, related to our podcast or integral to this podcast, yes. uh, but also his, his ideas on half earth and, and what that means with right. conserving nature. Right. And in fact, we'll be talking to him mostly about his book, Biophilia from 1984 and his, uh, and his 2016 book, Half Earth, Our Planet's Fight for Life, which is about setting half of the planet aside for conservation for not only the plants and animals that live there, but for the functioning of the biological systems. And of course, both of these books are very thoughtful and they're very well introspective as well as broadly presenting a a worldview. In some ways, they're a nice pair of books to be talking about because one written decades ago, introducing this new concept, and then the more recent book taking in some ways, taking this concept of loving nature and saying, how do we use that to connect people to help us survive the next centuries? So incredible and and so uh, wonderful that that he gets to be our first interviewee. I think that, you know, he's got some really good ideas that not only are are good for nature, but but good for people, right? I mean, this this idea of half earth and, and setting aside wild places and, and places where not just for nature to, to exist separately, but for us to exist with nature, I think is really key. So I'm, I'm excited mm-hmm. to, to hear what he has to say. And the other thing is, and he, he is very committed to young people getting into science. And this is something that to me is is also really important. And he, he talks about it, especially in Half Earth, about really trying to encourage people who are thinking about a career to consider science, especially natural history. It's incredibly rewarding and oftentimes very adventurous, if I do say so. (laughs) If you think about conservation as providing us 
a continuance of a planet to live on. Right. And that, to me, is uh, a really compelling statement that he makes. Absolutely. So, so after the break, we'll be talking to E.O. Wilson about his perspectives on biophilia and his books. Sounds good. Love Nature, the Biophilia Podcast, is a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. Each episode explores our connection with nature on a personal, physical, and scientific level that enables us to live better and more responsibly on the planet. This podcast was made possible by a donation from the Burt's Bees Foundation and Burt's Bees to the Friends of the Museum of Natural Sciences. Now, on to our interview. Dr. E.O. Wilson is a research professor emeritus at Harvard University and the guiding force shaping the mission of the E.O. Wilson Biodiversity Foundation. In his long career, he's transformed his field of study, which has been the behavior of ants, and applied his scientific perspective to the human condition, our origins, nature, and interactions. He's also a pioneer in efforts to protect the planet's biodiversity. It is the author of more than 20 books, including The Social Conquest of Earth, The Meaning of Human Existence, and Letters to a Young Scientist. He's also the author of two Pulitzer Prize-winning books, On Human Nature and The Ants with Bert Herdobler. Importantly for our conversation today, in 1984, he wrote Biophilia, The Human Bond with Other Species. And in 2016, he wrote Half Earth, Our Planet's Fight for Life. Ed, welcome. Thanks for being our inaugural guest. Is there anything else you'd like to say about yourself before we get into biophilia? No, that was well done. Thank you. Very complimentary. Well done. Thank you. No, it's it's wonderful. So why don't we why don't we kick off a little bit and and start thinking about bio, biophilia from your perspective? How do you what sort of what caused you to bring this all together as a as a an idea? I had two motivations that joined together and made me want to search for something like this uh, in the uh, 1980s. In 1975, I published a book called Sociobiology, and it was a uh, treatise on the origins of social behavior throughout the animal kingdom, uh, which got kudos from biologists mostly, but also I included human beings because I wanted to transmit from what we learn about the rest of life concerning behavior, and particularly social behavior, I want to transmit it uh, to some useful form to explain human instincts. And that raised quite a controversy. So I was, I was always uh, in mind following as the controversy uh, cooled, cooled off. I was always in mind ways of uh, studying the genetic appurtenances of um, uh, of human behavior, then I've also was at that time on boards of directors of conservation organizations. We were just getting a new power and initiative in the 1980s, 1990s of organizations promoting 
conservation and making the public more conscious. But I was concerned, as after having served on a couple of boards, that the arguments made for conserving the rest of life, for setting up nature reserves, was vulnerable. Because the arguments that were being made primarily in fundraising and allying leadership with uh, that of business uh, was, were heavily economic. I mean, it was, the conservation was promoted as uh, being good for, for business, good for uh, human beings, their welfare, and particularly the systems that we have developed by learning. Uh, and um, that was vulnerable. So uh, I began to think a lot about, this is the 1980s, about um, a deeper reason for making a real effort to save biodiversity, the rest of life, or the variety of the rest of life. And as a result of that, I developed a, uh, the concept of biophilia, which is that we are innately prone, not just immediately to have a concern for the welfare and preservation of the rest of life forms, but that we have an innate propensity to learn and feel satisfaction, deep emotional satisfaction from looking out after the rest of life. I found enough evidence of that and logic to uh, make it a serious subject. And that's when I set out to publish the idea in the book, 1984 or 83, uh, called Biophilia. And since then, it's really taken off as a concept, hasn't it? I mean, there's so many institutes of biophilic design and architects who are using this and artists. How do you feel about this being sort of a, a linchpin for so many different kinds of endeavor? Well, my anxieties were relaxed somewhat. I saw that, <laughs> That's good. That's good. Yes. I, I saw that uh, agreement. Uh, to the notion that uh, we have more than just a learned and cultural propensity to want to protect the rest of life. There's more to that, to conservation, and the motivation for conservation is something that I think we've established and that was very satisfying. So we're we're really a part of nature, right? So that I think that's hard for some folks. It's not just like a terrarium or a fishbowl that we take care of, but... I think people, we're, we're a big part of that, and it's a part of our world, and we need to protect it just like we protect ourselves. That's what it comes to. I, I believe that it's pretty well settled now that in the course of human evolution, we had such an intimate relationship to the rest of nature and depended on it, that is, our ancestors did, our pre-human ancestors, going back for... Uh, hundreds of thousands and even millions of years uh, that we had, uh, they, they had such intimate relationship to the environment that they developed propensities to learn certain things and value certain things 
automatically. The result, I believe, is our emotions evolved in our pre-human state mm. uh, over those long millennia in which human beings came into their present form. And that's how we are guided substantially by pre-human emotional born instincts. But among, the, among those instincts was the ones which I believe are included in the concept of biophilia. Mm, yeah. You said something in Half Earth that I thought was fascinating, which was the idea that our modern garden aesthetic is trying to recreate the savanna that we evolved on. And that it was thinking about it in the kinds of landscapes that we love, that we find stimulating, is the same structure that you find in Africa. And it was, it was fascinating. Studies of uh, that phenomenon of habitat selection, what people everywhere, at least people that have been tested, everywhere consider their ideal environment that they like to be in. These are studies conducted primarily by a team at the University of Washington uh, showed that what people almost everywhere they're tested prefer an environment that matches pretty closely that of Africa and Africa going all the way back to the period of, in the time in which human beings were evolving. And that uh, has the features of one, grassland, or something like it, or savanna, really, grassland, with copses of woodland scattered here and there. That covers a good deal of Africa. Next, if your habitation is ideally uh, on a little bit of an elevation, Mm. you can look out over that. And finally, next to water. That's what people innately prefer if they can choose where they live. That sounds perfect to me. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly sounds, where I want to live. Sounds ideal, doesn't it? That's right. And you just said a minute ago, if that's the time that our emotions were evolving as something we can recognize as being human today, it makes sense that it all is connecting. Is a, I, I hate to use the word archetype because I'm never quite sure I, I get it right, you know. <laughs> but it, if there is one, maybe that's, that's it. Part of it is, is the uh, from from the obvious evidence of people living in cities, brought up in cities, having their ancestors having spent generations in and around cities, have a strong tendency to go out into nature. Nature is a is a hard really thing hard hard to identify, but basically what it is, the environment existed before humanity became what it is today. So if we have this connection, because I think some people don't recognize it, right? I think some people have been kind of shut out from nature in a way that if we can just open the door and kind of reintroduce them, I think that'll be better for people, for their health, and for the environment and for nature itself. What do you think? Like, how can we get people to really recognize that connection? If we're already doing it, you're involved in it. By having the kind of truthful and moving exhibitions we have in the best museums and also 
uh, gardens and then zoos. These are highly developed in Western cultures particularly, and that's the starter. But also by studying human behavior in evolutionarily uh, historical terms, which brings you pretty quickly to our relationship to nature. And having that as just a, a general education, I believe that this is a lot easier to do, that latter part, than many people would think when they first began to worry a bit about the problems. There are things in it that make it very interesting, such as our automatic fight created by snakes and spiders. That's a good one, actually. Uh, I'm a veterinarian. I work mostly with reptiles and amphibians and, and even bugs, uh, invertebrates. So I love where you've written about your adventures with snakes and kind of that idea that people have this kind of excitement or this like innate sort of reaction. And I think even people who like those animals probably feel a little bit of that, that excitement as well. And I've uh, really connected with that in, in your writing. Oh, uh, yes. Snakes make entertainment. I made them uh, part of my preparation in life. I wasn't realized. I didn't realize I was doing it in my teens. Growing up in southern Alabama, where there are 32 species of snakes. That's a great snake place. <laughs> I developed a fascination with them and collected as many as I can. Kept uh, some uh, in uh, captivity uh, and uh, let them all go. And it was uh, very exciting to me to work on them. But we know now that people are afraid of snakes generally and have a innate, powerful fear of snakes. Ophidophobia is called. If, as children, they are exposed to snakes in an unpleasant way, such as having uh, something like a snake or a rubber snake uh, dropped on them or, or stories, terrible stories about snakes. And they acquire that way, if uh, they're ever going to have it, a deep fear of snakes and even an abnormal fear, a true phobia where they have a strong physical reaction to just bite or the reality of a snake. That uh, originate probably from the fact that snakes in primitive areas with a lot of forest, particularly in the tropics, the cause of mortality, yeah. I want to ask Eric what his thoughts on snakes are. Oh, I love snakes. I've, <laughs> yeah. I've kept a couple. I had a python and a, a boa constrictor, both small, over the years. I'm, I'm a, a huge fan of snakes. But, you know, it's interesting because thinking about how we can love or hate something in a, a species or a group of species on a visceral level, something that, that Ed really, that you wrote in Half Earth that really resonated with me a lot was about how a natural historian can almost develop a romance with a, a species or a group of species. And uh, I did my PhD on cormorants and, and hinga especially cormorants are a species that are, are persecuted. People hate them, especially fishermen. And, and I have this 
absolute love of them. You know, I can see, I'd love to see every species of cormorant in the world eventually. And when you know their, their behavior and the nuance of what they do and how intelligent they are and can solve problems to get fish. And this is exactly, you know, how do we create instead of the phobia that people have? And spiders are another thing that I love. I, I really, I find them, especially the, the salticids, the um, jumping spiders. I just have this real admiration for them. How do we get people to have that exposure and that, that love of, of what they see around as opposed to coming in contact with it and having, instead of that primal love, the primal loathing that, that you were just talking about. Yeah. yeah, I think the way to do it is to introduce biodiversity and field trips to study and see biodiversity as an early stage of, of education, even going back to the grammar school. We worry and talk a lot about bringing more young people into science. And we don't know exactly how to do that. I have suspicion on my part of the importance and magnitude of what is called STEM. That's for science, technology, uh, engineering, and mathematics. Young people have sort of are given the notion from the rule of STEM as a teaching principle, that if they want to be, let us say, biologists, or if they'd like to be ecologists, especially those, they have to make it through the schools by means of STEM. That is to say, if you want to be a naturalist, if you want to become an ecologist and really learn a lot and do a lot, then, sorry, uh, unless you're willing to work real hard, you've got to learn biology. In order to learn biology, you've got to learn chemistry. Oh, and don't forget that chemistry is undergirded by physics, so we're going to have to learn some physics. And certainly you recognize by this time that none of these are properly going, are going to be properly mastered even at an amateur level, without understanding of mathematics. Mm, well, that's a yeah, pretty frightening yeah. <laughs> a, uh, training period you're laying out for most kids. I take a completely different view. I say, and I think, I hope this would be my answer at any rate to what the matter that you just raised. The best way to introduce young people to science and get them doing science and getting them to want to be scientists. And in addition, taking an interest in other species and nature and developing a real love of it so that they are preparing with pleasure to develop more STEM as they go along in high school and college education. The way to do it is to take them out on field trips. For teachers to engage young people in field trips in which they see nature and they discover things and they hunt for certain things, there's a activity called BioBliss. Yeah, that's, that's great. Yeah, I was in on the first one conducted here in, in, the, in the 1990s. 
people, including whatever experts could be recruited on different kinds of animals, spiders, snakes, butterflies, whatever, go out for one day into a designated area and see how many different species they can find in order to, well, just for the pleasure of it, uh, then do to meet and talk about them and see if they've set some kind of a record and, and the like. And young people are invited to participate that with that. Uh, that's the way, along other with other methods, of uh, having research projects, having field trips that can be done even as early as grammar schools to find things, to see things that you'll bring young people more easily and naturally into the study and the love of nature. You talked a second ago about STEM, and in Biophilia, you were writing about the this sort of interplay between art and science. So I'm, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on STEAM, the, the science, technology, engineering, the arts, and mathematics, that, that sort of subgroup of, of STEM. Yeah, I admit I'm pretty biased because uh, <laughs> my mind is on conservation and, and biodiversity. In fact, uh, I had another motivation in the 1980s when I started writing on this aspect of human behavior, biophilia, the uh, practice as it was uh, going on in the 1980s in the, the conservation organization. I was on the board of directors of several of them through the 80s and 90s and on up to the present time. And I was worried that uh, they were not doing the job that they could be doing. It was too early, too easy to overturn the um, results of conservation. And as I mentioned earlier, there was that inspired me to take up the subject of conservation as a scientific subject. One of the things that I think about a lot being at a museum is that, you know, we have these essentially artistic spaces that we interpret, we use to interpret the world. And is there a way to loop in say, fine artists or other aesthetic mechanisms to either send people out to nature or interpret nature kind of as a portal. That's something I've thought about a lot, what, what our place, our role is as a museum. Uh, I'm talking to an expert. <laughs> I don't know. I think- I'm not very good at advising experts, and I'm sure you're doing it, uh, you're doing the right thing. Uh, well, I believe probably that's you draw people in with extraordinary exhibits, which you can advertise as being exceptional. And that can be uh, some kind of extraordinary material that's uh, put on display. Yeah. But also you can bring people in, and when they're there, you can teach them a lot, and as well as perhaps help guide uh, the young people uh, with principles of ecology illustrated by uh, the material that you have there. We were very lucky to have filmed a, a couple of years ago. You did uh, a wonderful 
program in our daily planet theater where you were talking to young people about science and and it was really such a a charming interaction especially with their questions from around the world for me that was a, a huge treat i'm so glad that it's still available that that session yeah i'm glad to hear that part of the attraction of the outdoors and nature is for the inspiration to, to learn about science comes from the ability to make discoveries almost immediately. Yeah. And Pinot's discoveries are exceptionally striking. Then you have something to uh, promote for a very large general audience. But the fact is that there's so much new to discover all around us. Mm. It's been estimated that there are uh, on the planet about order of magnitude, 10 million species of different kinds of organisms, land and sea. And the number that have been discovered uh, diagnosed that is given, uh, studied, uh, the main characteristic of and given a scientific name is just a, a little more than two million. So about four-fifths, 80% of the species on Earth of plants and animals and to some degree uh, microorganisms about which we know extremely little uh, 40, uh, 80% remain to be discovered. I can, if we were together and you have a little bit of grass that's been growing for a period of time or a patch of, of woodland near the museum, yeah. we could go out together, take up leaf litter, some soil, get out the uh, very small organisms we find in there, mites, a little wasp, maybe even ants, and with the help of specialists who know how to identify them, discover at least one or two new species anywhere you go. This is a notion I think that somehow should be implanted by exhibitions of, of museums and even zoos. I agree. I, I think that's a that's a really good concept, and what a great way to get kids involved in science and, and making discoveries. I, I think just just as you said, I, I've seen in medicine, and so in veterinary medicine, when I work with bugs or invertebrates, so I we do medical exams and medical procedures, but but this stuff has never been done before. So at at our museum, our clinic is on display, and, and folks can interact with us. And so they literally can make discoveries. You know, this, this is like the first time this has ever been done. And there could be a family with a couple kids and a couple adults right there with us making discoveries. And I think that's a great way to pull people into science. Uh, also to get the New York Times uh, to stop making it a big story if a new species is, is discovered. Why, why do you think? Well, uh, what they do is to... Uh, they tend to do is headline a discovery of some kind of organism that people know about, usually a bird or a mammal, 
and presented as a big story that a new species of animal or a new species of plant uh, has been made by an expedition perhaps uh, in Ecuador or in Thailand and make a story out of it. I think that's probably overdoing it. I think it should be done in a different way. Interesting. Such as 13 new species discovered in Central Park. <laughs> right. Of, of a small wasp. Unfortunate. My wife is quite a naturalist and we've been married for a long time. We went to high school together. Anyway, she, uh, she loves to work in the yard and, and sort of document nature in the yard. And she has posted these pictures of a, a little spider. This is a crab spider that she's posted and apparently maybe a new species. That's what, that's what the folks that follow her, the experts say. So, you know, even in your backyard, you know, just anybody can have an opportunity. Oh, that's very true. And jumping spiders, incidentally, need experts. Uh, these delightful little uh, spiders who only build partial nest and do most of their hunting, not by waiting for something to fall into the nest, but going out and hunting it, right. are extraordinarily interesting creatures. They're everywhere, and uh, there are large numbers of un described species, new species, where in many parts of the world, particularly in tropical parts. I've been told that there is a possibility of uh, jumping spiders ranging a good way up Mount Everest, probably with new species. Amazing. So yeah. that's a good career for a... a, a <laughs> uh, if anyone, if, if uh, there are young people listening and they want to get started on a group of organisms that they could become experts on and be important experts doing really original research and making new discoveries by the time they're in college, that's one of the groups I would suggest. Jumping spiders, or salt-pitted spiders. Another group of the ones that are the most abundant, among the most abundant, those are the springtails. They're little slender uh, creatures that you find under rocks and soil and uh, on the top of snow sometimes, and uh, they are largely unknown around the world. We need experts on springtails. That's something with springtails, folks that have aquariums in their homes and have like aquarium filters and a little bit of flow, surprisingly, there'll be whole colonies of springtails that live just under the, the light or the, you know, the enclosure top of their aquarium. Yeah, that's, that's, that's interesting. Recently, the uh, Russians, in the attempts uh, uh, to bore through uh, the uh, Antarctic ice shield uh, to Lake Vostok, which is freshwater lake a million years old, trapped under that ice shield, succeeded. And they brought up the first water and organisms in it. And incredibly, the first organisms that came up that have been down under that Antarctic seal in the, in the water there were springtails. We know that some springtails are aquatic. They can live in water. Many are in other extreme environments. And we need, if uh, any young person is listening who's thinking about jumping spiders or solstice spiders at this point, 
are not quite convinced, start thinking about springtails. That's something to become an expert on when you're still in high school. Good advice. <laughs> we're, we're going to have a, uh, an interview coming up with Adrian Smith, who's an insect behavioral biologist at our museum. And he's been filming springtails in slow motion and looking at their jumping mechanism. It's, and he collects them off his rubbish bin out <laughs> house. So it's, um, it's all right there, just waiting. Oh, I'm sure that uh, at least a few he's getting are undescribed species. Actually, springtails played a, a role in my own career because I did what I've just been suggesting uh, with, in our discussion uh, with ants. I began uh, studying ants. I was down in Alabama where it has a lot of different kinds of ants and some new to science and, and very few having been studied in any way. And when I got to the University of Alabama, I was encouraged to continue my interest by the faculty there. I was given a spot with a microscope to work with. And I worked uh, out in my freshman year what some of the ants feed on. And that included a kind of ant that is very common with new species all over the place that has long mandibles. And I discovered those mandibles are used to capture springtails. <laughs> so I've had, a, uh, I've had a springtail important career myself. <laughs> wow, fantastic. I, I stayed with the ants, but I usually could have switched over to springtails. But they're still there waiting. And so are many other kinds of organisms, plant and Thank you for listening to Love Nature, the Biophilia Podcast, a production of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. You can listen or subscribe at anchor.fm slash the Biophilia Podcast, or you can come to our website, naturalsciences.org. You can also visit the museum in beautiful downtown Raleigh. Details on our website.